Hello, and welcome to The Exit, presented by Flippa.com, the number one platform to buy and sell online businesses. Flippa manages over a billion in deal value annually and combines expert buy and sell side advisory with its market-leading valuation tool, deal room, off-market offering, market insights, and AI-based deal-by-deal matching engine. Now for The Exit. The Exit is a 30-minute podcast featuring amazing entrepreneurs who have been there and they have done it. The Exit talks to operators who have bought and sold businesses of all different sizes. You'll learn how they did it, why they did it, and get exposure to the world of Exits. It's a world occupied by a small few, but accessible to many. Now, in this episode, I sit down with Bob Gilbreth. He's a two-time Exited founder and really just fantastic guy based in Cincinnati, and we unpack his multiple exits on this episode. One of the coolest parts about my conversation here with Bob is we talk about Procter & Gamble. He spent time there starting in 1998 to 2004, and just how much data Procter & Gamble has is incredible. And he goes on to create a hology that he talks about how they raised $10 And really made this incredible, profitable turnaround by pivoting when a sales rep came back from a pitch and he'd closed a deal on influencer marketing. Like they were offering Pinterest deep level digital marketing. And this one conversation basically turned the entire company into a more profitable way and they ended up uh, exiting the company for a really incredible exit of $50 million to Quotient, which is a publicly traded company. Now, when Bob walks through how that pivot happened and really just the crazy up and down of that pivot, the really cool uh, you know, unpacking that we go through in this conversation is around what it was like internally for the team. And he had this life date on the board. And this date basically was transparency to his team saying, hey, everyone, this is when we either sink or we swim because we're profitable on this date. About a year out, he said, was what it was. And it's really a brilliant way of bringing everyone together. He showed everyone the numbers, what they were burning. It was, I think, believe it was a team of about 30. And they had plans to go down to five people on the team. So really incredible. It was a lot of fun talking through this, his multiple exits, and just hearing from another operator how he thinks through, you know, shifting and pivoting with the entire team together on the same page at the same time, all in a very transparent, really cool way. So without further ado, let's sit down and have a conversation here on The Exit with Bob Gilbreth, the co-founder and CEO of Hardy. All right, everyone. Today, I am joined by Bob Gilbreth. He's the co-founder and CEO of Hardy. How's it going, Bob? Going well. Thank you. Yeah, excited to have you here. Excited to unpack uh, your multiple exits. But before we do get to the nitty-gritty and the fun part of the, the conversation, let's kick it off with your background. Let's hear how you got into business and entrepreneurship. Sure. Started off, I... Uh... 
graduated from Duke University in economics, didn't know what I was going to do, but no one wanted to do something in business and uh, went to banking uh, after graduating as a way to just get exposed. And after a couple of years doing that, realized a couple of things. One, banking was not for me. Uh, my money, our money was as green as anybody else's. So it was really a, a tough business to be in. And also a couple of years in, this internet thing started happening. I'll never forget logging into AOL for the first time and saying, I got to be a part of this somehow. And uh, But I wasn't ready to do a startup, anything. I wanted to, to get more into learning about business and went to business school at NYU. And while I was there, just did as many things related to, to digital stuff as I could. I volunteered for some startups in New York City. This was the time that the, the first dot-com years were getting going. Uh, did a project with a company called Cosmo.com that uh, was delivering food and things way before uh, it was half popular and didn't end so well, but I learned a lot. And uh, then went to, did the totally uncool thing and went to go work at Procter & Gamble. Uh, nice. Almost almost went to Yahoo, but said, ah, I got to learn more. And it was the, it was weird, but I had interned there and they said, hey, come on back. You know, we'll, we'll, you kind of get to learn the, the basics of marketing and the biggest brands in the world. Plus, you can help us figure out what to do in this digital marketing world. And uh, it's a company that's known for giving you a big budgets and a lot of freedom to lead. And uh, I said, hey, let me let me go do that. The, the tipping point was really that so many other successful entrepreneurs had gone to Procter & Gamble. Think about the founders of companies like Intuit and Steve Ballmer at Microsoft, Meg Whitman at eBay. And so I kind of saw that this would be a great stepping stone to learn a lot, you know, with a, a great leadership program. And then I'll have time to to get to be entrepreneurial later. And uh, after five years in and, and lots of, of great experiences there, I did get that entrepreneurial chance um, when some friends of mine from Procter & Gamble, they had left and kind of happened to buy a small uh, advertising agency in Cincinnati that had been around for 30 years. And, and they started focusing on digital marketing as like the low cost local shop and said, Hey, Bob, why don't you come on over, join our executive team. We'll give you a, a piece of the company and let's see if we can build this thing up. And, uh, that was, uh, the first jump into the entrepreneurial space. Um, learned a ton, uh, about the service industry and working with big companies and, and growing a business from, you know, a couple million bucks, uh, over time, eventually sold that, uh, company, in 2004 and had a five-year earnout, which I do not recommend. <laughs> Very long earnouts in the service industry. Uh, and it was kind of one of those things where you got about 10% of the potential purchase price up front, 90% uh, potential over five years based on revenue and profit goals. And uh, there was many days uh, of, of struggle there to, to get to it. But um, it was a great, great exit, great ending. We maxed it out like a year and a half before the five years was up, and that uh, um, was a it was a good good times there of kind of having that first exit experience. Yeah, nice, nice. And on the Procter and Gamble front, I have heard that path as well. And I worked with a company in 2017. Friends of mine had started a uh, a direct consumer deodorant company, and Procter and Gamble acquired it for 100 million. And effectively, you know, we all got to go and check out Procter & Gamble and just the amount of data 
that Procter & Gamble has was, I can imagine you were privy to a lot of really great data and information and stuff like that there. But for people listening and young entrepreneurs out there that are starting companies in the direct-to-consumer space, basically Procter & Gamble, I would say, has the most information on buying power, on just demographics and everything in, in out of everybody in the world. I, I can't think of anyone else who does have that level of knowledge about direct-to-consumer. For sure. And I think um, for me, it was also just that grounding in the basics of how do you understand the pain point of a consumer and come up with ideas to solve it? And so there's many times I was sitting there working on Tide, one of the biggest brands in the world, and writing ideas myself of what a molecule might be doing or what we might say and putting in front of, of people at a church in rural Ohio and saying, what do they think about this before we go build it? So some mm -hmm. of the basics of startup understanding and problems and minimum viable product, you know, I get to see it a pretty huge product company. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really cool to get access to like that. And it makes perfect sense. That that's like a, a cool a stepping stone to jump into uh, the entrepreneurial journey. So let's talk a little bit about you. You really did a great job of describing the earnout over five years. You, you got to the milestones a year and a half early. So you really kind of answered some of the questions for me there. But the things that you were tracking, I know a lot of people that are listening to this have service-based businesses. What were the types of things that you were tracking? And what was the kind of framework for an earnout in a service-based industry like that? Yeah, I mean, it was um, everything's negotiable. Uh, in my second company, you had to earn out as well. And, uh, you know, it's really key going into the deal. I think that a couple things of understanding what are the what are the measures that are there and making it as clear as possible and you having confidence that you can get there, even if you don't know exactly how, you know, it's not going to take a miracle. The second thing is being very clear on the uh, control of the company. So in, in both of my earnouts, it was key to, to negotiate that, hey, we're, we need to keep pulling the levers here um, because that's where I think most of the, the stories that we had heard of where problems happen is someone's coming in and telling you how to run your business. And there was a reason you don't allow that because if they could run it better than you, they wouldn't need to buy you. <laughs> and you can get caught in the politics and things like that. So, you know, measures were, were the easy part, you know, in that agency, it was both revenue and profit uh, over time. Uh, in our second company, it was just a revenue number, but um, little 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 tensions here and there in the process of making sure that we could keep control to keep running the business well. Yeah. And let's transition to the next stage. You go through this five-year exit. It was kind of a, a great learning experience. And where did you go from there? Did you jump right into another venture? And what was that startup experience like? Yeah, actually... Um, Left after after the earnout and spent about a year with a local venture capital company in Cincinnati, and kind of like a part time job of helping find companies to invest in and be on boards of this early stage investment firm. Great exposure to lots of different companies, seeing the VC side of the world, uh, and I'd always wanted to do a true startup, true technology company versus just a service company that we kind of happened into. And met uh, through the process a founder who had an idea that wasn't a great idea. I was on his board. We made a small investment. And he discovered, um, in trying to market this fashion idea, this concept that he had, he discovered Pinterest. And Pinterest as a social platform was just getting going. 
and was seeing amazing traffic to that. And as his one investor and board member, knowing the digital marketing world really well, it popped my eyes and said, there's something happening here. And part of what was happening is seeing that this is what I always believed in, in being a part of, of marketing from the brand side and the agency side was the future is about creating meaningful marketing, something that that people are choosing to engage with. And just waiting for changes in the in the world to unlock those opportunities. So seeing the Pinterest getting amazing traffic and things that brands love, like recipes from a craft or hairstyles from a pantine, you know, things like that that are just a natural fit of where the brand has a right to talk about useful content. Uh, we kind of said, hey, let's this fashion idea isn't working. Let's go full ass into Pinterest and build a we built a company called Ahology as a uh, SaaS business uh, together as for Pinterest marketing optimization tools. So built that up. Often we were the first people talk. We were talking to big brands before Pinterest had anyone that could talk to big brands. And that was kind of the idea. We had looked at um, how Facebook evolved and Twitter evolved and all of them had very healthy ecosystems of partners um, that kind of rose with them. And that was the bet we were going to make is this thing's going to be big. Brands are going to need help. You know, we're getting in early and we're going to be, you know, their number one partner. Had a couple years of struggle, raised a bunch of money, blew a bunch of money, made every mistake in the startup book. <laughs> uh, my co-founder left a few years in. He got burned out. And uh, I was there with a couple of uh, other executives. And we we had, you know, our investors basically said, we're not giving you any more checks. You know, good luck. And we sat there and made all kinds of plans for, you know, we, we went from 50 people down to 30. We had plans that we might have to go to five people, uh, you know, the pretty much in the dumps. But we said, you know, kind of just said, what the hell? Let's see what we, we can do here and turned it into a company um, challenge and said, hey, guys, you know, completely open. Here's the numbers. Here's what we got to do. And said, we as a team need to control our own destiny. And that means we can't rely on investors giving more money and we can't rely on Pinterest being good and being nice to us. <laughs> so that led us to, you know, exploring a lot of things as an entire company. Um, we set what we called a life date. Here's the date on the calendar. It was about a year out that we either need to be profitable or we're going to die. And that was really a rallying point. And we would show, you know, every company meeting every week, here's how we're doing on that. And there was this, this we had different ideas for businesses that we could pivot it into, but the magic happened when one of our salespeople was out working with a, a shopper marketing agency in Minneapolis presenting our pitch. And one of the, the agency people said, oh, you guys are like influencer marketing. And she said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and got a $25,000 campaign of influencer marketing with, on Pinterest and came back uh, to the office and said, I sold this thing. What do we do? How do we do this? And we put our heads together and said, you know what, this is, we can do, you know, eight, nine, 80 or 90% of the things we were doing on Pinterest around content. And we were, we were bringing in influencers to our platform to create Pinterest content. We were able to repurpose and do it in frankly, a better, more efficient way um, using data, using paid media instead of earned media and uh, did the campaign. The client loved us, gave us another one, introduced us to another sister agency um, in Atlanta. And, you know, so that that was the magic, you know, is instead of kind of selling something that no one had bought before, relying on another platform, 
influencer marketing was already taking off. Companies were spending budget on it. And they were also up for something new and different and better. And so um, that was the the magic that got us got us profitable, started doubling sales a couple of years and um, started to get some attraction from the bigger players in the market. This podcast is brought to you by Flippa.com, the leading global platform to buy and sell online businesses. Do you need evaluation for your business? Have you asked yourself, who would buy my business? Flippa has a leading valuation tool. It's free to use and based on thousands of historical sales. To get evaluation or to schedule a call with an advisor, head to flippa.com slash free valuation. Now, back to the show. Nice. Nice. Love that story. Like it came from the front lines on a sales pitch. Uh, that is like a really great, great example. And the idea of putting a life on the company, like a life date, I really enjoy that. The, through the transparency of the, you know, the numbers and everything like that. And the entrepreneurs that I've talked to and gotten to know over the years. I, I have found that transparency with your team truly can bring you through the the worst like possible scenarios. And a lot of people clench on tight to their books and stuff like that. But I think anybody listening to this that isn't truly comfortable with transparency, it is worth researching. Like give it a Google as to the values of doing it and just the psychology around the teammates feeling part of it, uh, especially younger generations want to feel like they have pull. And it's such a great example of like, Hey, this is, this is a situation. Here's our, our live or die date. And everybody rallied together. And I assume once that salesperson came in, they had a great sense of ownership as well. And everybody really uh, can rally around it. Exactly. It wasn't the top down idea. I mean, it was kind of like what made our culture great overall is, hey, we're all in this thing together. We did a bunch of stuff to push ownership and responsibility down to even people who had, you know, two weeks out of college. And so, um, of course, you got to you go all or nothing, you know, pretty much on the transparency piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. So let's let's dig into the the deal a little bit. How did it how did conversations begin? And what were negotiations like? Yeah. So as soon as we we had this product market fit and influencer and we're doubling and profitable, I, I mean, first of all, I'll say I took it as a, a pretty big chunk of my job. My my team was running. I didn't need to be on sales calls. Like things were working. And so it's something I think the leader, the CEO has to do. And so I took that as about 20% of my time of, of building relationships with people in the industry. Two big focus were there was about five companies in the kind of CPG digital media space uh, that were making acquisitions of, of companies in different categories that were emerging. Um, the second thing is I found investment bankers who focused on deals in this kind of industry sector too. And just literally found them, got an intro, you know, from somebody in the network and was extremely open about what we were doing, our revenue, our profit, our growth, you know, no NDAs, none of that. And uh, on the company side, the corp dev people is, is who I was speaking with. You know, my goal there was, hey, I know they can't do what we're doing. They've got other things happening and they do make acquisitions. I want them to remember us when they're sitting at some board meeting going, oh, my God, this influencer space is growing. We got to do something. 
who's that Bob guy that we talked to? Yeah. You know, so every six months you kind of keep that, that fresh and share what we're doing and, and they hear the consistency and it's growing in their minds. On the investment banker side, they were, you know, extremely helpful in helping me understand more about those companies, what's going on in the market. And I learned a lot for free, but I was also kind of testing them. And mm-hmm. uh, that came back to when I had to choose an investment banker to work with, the one that was the most helpful and that I trusted the most. That was an easy decision. But um, those conversations were happening eventually. Uh, a company called Quotient, um, public company uh, that originally rose creating the first package goods digital coupon uh, about 25 years ago. They reached out and, and the flirting began. And uh, that's when we, when we, you know, a term sheet was coming, you know, things were good and and hired the bank uh, to do a process, talked to a couple of those other firms that I already had some relationship with, uh, got another competing offer, but the quotient one was best in part because it was a shorter earn out. <laughs> and uh, that was in the summer of 2018. And negotiation wise, a couple, a couple points that were helpful. First is, you know, not having to sell. That is the the best thing possible, being profitable, you know, having investors that were letting us, you know, run um, those conversations. Everyone, my, my COO, Ryan and I, we just get there and go, remember, we don't have to sell. We don't have to sell. We don't have to sell. Yeah. We don't have to sell. And, uh, you know, that, that keeps things good and, and manageable and your, lets your brain not get obsessed. The other thing, and that also gives you the confidence. So, through the negotiation process, one of the things that was interesting is they're trying to peg to our current revenue and profit and get a multiple on that. But since we were doubling, you know, the past couple of years, it's like, hey, I don't need to sell. I'll wait a year and you're going to have to double your price, you know, because we're going to be worth more. And so that led to a negotiation around an earnout structure. And what we got to was a 20 million upfront and then up to 30 million um, additional after 18 months. The, the target was like another 20, but there was an upside. Um, there was a cap and there was a, a floor that if we didn't hit a certain amount, we'd sit zero in the air now. But based on the, the growth rate that we had and confidence in our business and the idea that this company was saying, hey, you've got a great product. They have you know, 100 salespeople working with every major customer we'd ever dream of having. Um, it felt like a, a pretty good no-brainer going in. Nice. Nice. Very cool. And end-to-end, you know, you had the bankers, you had multiple offers. End-to-end, how long was the the whole process? Um, I think I, I'd call it the serious flirtation that started in, <laughs> ja- in January 2018. And then we, you know, kind of most of the negotiation kind of like March, April. Interestingly, we were we were so prepared my CEO, Ryan, and I, again, we talk to other people, you know, I talk to people who have bought companies and sold companies. And uh, one of my friends had bought, you know, been a part of a company that made several acquisitions asking him, you know, w- w- tell me about you know, the good and bad. And he told us years before, have a deal room, you know, have that mentality that at any time you could be ready. And so our level of organization meant that we actually closed a whole month earlier than we expected, which again is great because, we kind of got a free month extra on our earnout timeline and you know time is your time can be your enemy so anything you can do to speed up these deals once you feel good uh work so um so the january to june was the official close nice nice so relatively relatively decent uh timeline there and 
for people listening, what tips could you give them around preparedness? I know you touched on it briefly, but there's there's a lot of things that people don't do <laughs> when it comes to being prepared. So just to touch on that, what, what it takes to be prepared. And then the second half is timing, why it was the right time for you guys to sell. Yeah, I think um, being prepared is, you know, some of it is having, knowing your plan. Um, and that probably goes to your second piece. But um, when you're a venture-backed business, it's either IPO or acquisition. So think about that. You know, don't wait for someday. Like, what can you do? And that's that's a lot of it is running the books well, getting you know contracts signed, like having the dis- the operational discipline throughout the business. Um, I, I think that was also just part of our overall success. You know, we're our team was very process focused in a good way. Like, I think people think process is a bureaucracy, but it's really about let's just here's a way we do things so that you don't have to think about it. And that having that process mentality and re- repeating mentality, it was very easy in an influencer business that we had where we did this one thing, here's how we do it. Harder in like an agency or a service business where you might do something different all the time. But that mentality of repeating, repetitive, stamping it out uh, and taking that from everything of how you hire people, um, you know, h- how you give raises, you know, how do you communicate with new clients, onboarding a new client, like having that, this is the way we do it. Also being open to change. I think that leads to a preparedness that helped in every aspect of our business, including our sale. And in terms of being ready, a couple things, you know, that went through it. And this is, you know, some is strategic, some is kind of emotional, I think with everybody. Um, strategically, you know, two key things. First is we knew from our Past all of our agency, we had heard that once you hit about $2 million, $10 million run rate, you're real and you'll get the attention. And so we were getting to that number and, and that you know got us on the radar. The second thing is through our ups and downs uh, in our previous focus on Pinterest, you know, we had uh, the majority of ownership of our company was investors and former employees. And you're sitting there saying, hmm. I'm doing a lot of work and, you know, for them and, uh, you know, there's, and we're profitable and this is growing. Like it might be just better to, uh, to lock in the gains and, you know, learn from our, you know, some of the mistakes of dilution and start over again. You know, I think you also get a confidence that, Hey, we can do this again. Um, let's lock in this gain. There's also, I think a little bit of, um, strategically you say there's only going to be so many, um, dance partners in a new space, um, the acquisitions of an influencer company are going to happen. You don't want to be the last one standing. So when something's new and different, that's going to be a bolt on, you know, don't, don't go too early, but if you wait too long, you'll be kicking yourself. Yeah. Well said. And that's a good segment or segue into the finale question of knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? Well, I don't know if I'd listen to myself. <laughs> because <laughs> even even ten years ago, I read countless books and articles about startups and mistakes and you know why things worked or didn't. And I made all the mistakes uh, uh, anyway. But I think that's probably what I'd say is I, I'd come back and say, "Hey, Bob, you're going to make all those mistakes. You're going to pivot all over the place. That's part of the process. And uh, maybe don't hire and spend as quickly." <laughs> Uh, as you did and, and give yourself more, more lunch to make those mistakes. Well said, well said. Well, those are all the questions I have for you. What are you working on now and where can people learn more? 
Well, yeah, a couple of us after after we finished our earnout and got our checks, we left uh, and we started a new business. Uh, a couple of us, uh, we love working together, and uh, we've built something in the people space because we love the people side of building companies. And we've created this uh, business called Hardy, which is a technology enabled service. It's really a recruiting service that's all about primarily matching remote software developers, especially the coasts like the Midwest where we are with early stage um, VC backed uh, startups that are especially in the West Coast. And finding this is a really great way to to put people and grump companies together that otherwise wouldn't find each other uh, to do some really cool stuff. So uh, um, but that's it, hardy.xyz. And I'm also writing continuously like you, Steve, you know, once you've been through it, you can't help it, but pass along the the help to others. And, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and, and I'm writing at Substack at, uh, uh, be hardy at Substack. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. There's something about it. Uh, just the type of person you have to become in order to, to do this type of lifestyle. <laughs> uh, there is a, an interesting characteristic about giving back and trying to just share what went on because it is a human experience. It is a, uh, a very unique experience that a lot of people don't talk about. They just see the headlines and they don't really get to hear the stories. So that's one of the reasons that we do this show, but those are all the questions that I have for you today. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, Bob. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the work that you do. For sure. Wherever you guys are listening on iTunes or Spotify, the links that Bob mentioned will be in the show notes. And thanks for listening.